Welcome to This Seriously Sucks, the right podcast when life goes seriously wrong. In these interview episodes, people who've been through major traumas and events that derailed their lives talk about times when they didn't want to go on and share how they did. All our guests are at least 10 years past their big this. They keep it real, pull no punches, and share what they wish they had known when they were in the middle of their this. Now, here is your host, the author of This Is Not The End, who knows what it feels like to want it to be the end, Nina Sossaman Pogue. Yes, this is the right podcast when life goes seriously wrong. And I'm so glad you found us. Thank you for sharing some time here. On this podcast, we talk about some of the lowest moments of highly successful people, the major life events that rocked their world and how they got through them. We can all learn from their stories of resilience. And this season, we're also throwing in some post-pandemic strategies because we know that this last two years have been uh, tough on everybody. We've all had our own struggles. Today's guest is a friend of mine. It's my season. This is like my season of my favorite people. Uh, <laughs> today's guest is Ramses Rodriguez, and he is a best-selling author. He holds a master's of science degree, and he combines science and theory and alternative therapies to help people remain panic-free. So his book is Don't Push Your Own Panic Button, that concept. And then he also is the founder of the Panic Freedom Academy. And once plagued by panic attacks himself, uh, he now is helping other people um, in, who are suffering through panic, panic attacks and anxiety with all sorts of holistic uh, modalities. And he's just one of my favorite uh, humans. And I think he's amazingly interested and y'all are gonna love him. Ramses, thanks so much for being here. Oh my God, it's so fun. It's so fun to finally be here. I've been a fan forever. I remember when you launched and, and now I'm here with you. <laughs> Right. And now you're two books in too, right? You have two books and the Academy you've launched. So we've both been on this yeah. journey to try to help other people through our experiences. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Two books all related to anxiety. So <laughs> you're right. You're right in your sweet spot here to help folks. Man, I always like to start this podcast with the people's resumes and all the stuff we're proud of and not uh, with the other things that really got us to where we are, which is the tough stuff that we've gone through. Mm -hmm. So for our audience, share with me one of those moments in your life where you thought, I, I just, I'm not sure I can keep, keep being on this planet. Yeah. Um, I would say related to my anxiety journey, because I feel like part of the reason I do what I do is because of my own struggles with really severe paralyzing anxiety. And I was always anxious as a kid and there were lots of different things. However, I think the moment one of the darkest moments i had and i chuckle when i say this because now i'm far enough away from it all that i could just you know you have the little chuckle in your throat right, right. and that's okay we all go wow i actually thought this was horrible and now i realize that yeah this is this is part of life right right and so i i, I have to go straight to my coming out story because i think it's so easy to talk about now and also um it was one of the scariest times I remember. So I, I grew up with um, a Pentecostal mom and a very Catholic father, both very Puerto Rican conservative. He's ex-military. Um, so a little scary. It's <laughs> so scary. I, I mean, there was no stepping out of line at home. I'll just right. say that. Um, and, you know, he's a war vet, all the things. So 
you could just just to paint a picture of my childhood and i grew up in miami so it's very diverse however my home was i would say fairly conservative and so when i came out i actually came out to myself um you could imagine growing up in a home where there's not even an option of being gay it's not talked about that way so you can't conceive of yourself of being gay um, being gay is just something other kids have. <laughs> That's the way <laughs> I know it sounds. So my, my father was, yeah, he would always say things like, you know, you know, poor parents for having a kid like that. It's just, you know, and he, he wouldn't mean it super mean, like, well, he didn't say it super mean, but you would, you, you got the feeling that it was bad to be gay. So your mind would never consider something like that. And when I came out, I was in college. I had, um, you know, I had tried to be with a girl, a, a woman, um, at, at Florida State University where I was, and then I transferred to another school um, to pursue my first degree in music, and um, and then I realized, oh, the reason that didn't work. By the way, it didn't work. <laughs> Things didn't work in that Got it. situation. We Got it. Have to get okay. too graphic. We can imagine that one. Yeah, yeah. Didn't work. And then I remember telling him, um, coming out to my parents and saying, remember that situation I told you about that didn't work? Here's why. And they were like, oh. Um, so my father's reaction and both my parents' reaction were, we love you anyway. Um, and I know some people really want that reaction and i'm very fortunate to at least have that um but you have to remember that they have to catch up with what how they're gonna see you and so my father took about a year before he wouldn't be weird about it he would call my boyfriends at the time he's like how's your friend like he just couldn't say words and um so overall that wasn't the hardest part i was always a kind of a chubbier kid and so coming into the gay community meant, yes, I had the weight of the world off my shoulders. I kind of felt my identity in a way, but then I didn't have one in the gay community. And I got a lot more rejection from trying to fit in, finding partners. There was, it was a hyper, from my perspective, a hyper-sexualized community. And it was so uncomfortable that I was like, I couldn't find love before because things didn't work, <laughs> but now I can't because I don't fit in. And it was so hard because it was so clear that I had like repressed homophobia. Like there were certain things that were definitely right and wrong that I had to reconsider mm -hmm. right and wrongness in my brain. Wow. And so at that point I got really depressed and I remember, you know, that conversation you have, have with yourself in your brain, <laughs> you're like, yes. is this worth it all? Um, I, I can't seem to understand where I fit in and um, I'm attracted to certain things that I don't even feel like I have access to. And it just seemed easier to just be like, I'd rather not, <laughs> I'd rather not do this. Um, and so what that did was uh, like, I, I think we were talking offline a little bit, but I was saying that I was always really good at research or being analytical. And I could logic my way through things and I could tell I wasn't in a good spot. Mm -hmm. So I went and went to the like campus counselor at first and I was like, hey, 
I'm not sure if I should be thinking about my life this way. <laughs> yeah. And um, at that point, I developed, because I was the chubby kid in the gay community, I developed a massive eating disorder. So not only did I have my life questioning thoughts, but also I, ha I had body dysmorphia. Because at that point, I had lost so much weight, and I didn't realize it. Um, and they were like, you're actually unhealthily losing weight. So they had me going into counseling and also weight, getting weighed every week. And I think they pseudo put me on suicide watch, um, you know, what have you. And, and, and it never went there, but they were having me go in to weigh myself every week. And so that made it worse. <laughs> Cause yeah, like keeping an eye on you and now you had something else to worry about. Uh, it was something else. And so what that did was even at that stage in that life, I was still a music major. I ended up burning all the bridges. I did. I, there was hardly any relationship that made sense at, at, at that point. Cause I'd gotten so deregulated. I will say, you know, I was, I changed my hairstyle. I straightened it. I put highlights. I mean, I was unrecognizable to myself. Um, and, you know, I think that's part of the phase of coming out, like it, the, not the phase, the process. You're, you're really trying to figure out what your life looks like now that you could be whole and complete. That said, it is unsettling for people observing you because they don't know how to position themselves around you. Not to say that that's an excuse for being a jerk, <laughs> but it, 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 I can see now that I'm away from it all that I can see at least, oh, this is how they were. This is why they were pulling away. They just didn't know what to do. Right. Um, and you were sort of pushing them away. And, and I, I really was. Um, yeah. I, and I know this is, I'm not yes, superimposing this on anyone else's coming out story. This one's just uniquely the way it happened for me. Things happen very differently for dif different people. Um, and, I, and I totally get that. But for me, I really do remember consciously saying, I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want these people. Or in some cases, I'd push them away just because I was so insecure. Or I just needed space to not be judged. Because mm -hmm. eventually what happens is um, you trigger people around you because they have an idea of what you were or have to be. And if you don't fit that for them, they might try to say micro things that push you a certain way that makes them feel comfortable. Um, and I, just, I, I needed total space to figure it out for myself. And, and, and that at that point, things got really scary. I started to have a very pretty wild lifestyle. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, and that does happen once again, but, um, I was a professional at that point. I said, okay, things are settling down. What do I want to do? And I wanted to go to medical school of all places. And so I become a geneticist after being a classical saxophonist. That's a big switch right there. Not a whole lot of transfers. <laughs> no, the one good transfer was discipline when you're a musician you're in a practice room so much and you're performing so much and you're spending hours by yourself or in groups rehearsing so much and that translated well to the amount of discipline you needed to study a lot and do lab work a lot and to do clinical work a lot um and so the discipline transferred nicely and the reason i say all this is because 
I just went all in as being this pre-med guy. Eventually, I got into research so much that I became a research researcher and went into industry after grad school um, developing cancer tests at a cancer institute in New York. And throughout that, I was always anxious. Mm -hmm. Um, However, panic attacks reared their ugly head again. (laughs) And so panic attacks started happening. I was like, how did I work so hard to get out of dark spots, dark places? And here is this recurring theme, this anxiety, the panic attacks and all the drama around it. Let me pause you there for a moment. For you, what does a panic attack look like? For folks who are listening who've never had a panic attack, what does, it, mm-hmm. what does it feel and look like for you? I know they're different for different people. Right, right, right. They are different for people. And panic attacks at its core, when anxiety symptoms, um, when anxiety escalates so much that it causes physical symptoms, people could have up to 30 to 50 symptoms at once in a single episode. Uh, things like shortness of breath, increased heart rate. Um, those are just some of the common ones, but they can get pretty scary, like derealization can happen during an episode. Um, and, you know, if someone has stage fright and they go blank, that is the closest thing I could describe as what de- derealization is, because you kind of everything kind of goes blank for you. Um, That's the closest I could describe derealization. Um, But there are many symptoms. And for me, I basically had this big crying fit a lot of times because it was so scary. So I'd be crying while all these, my body's like sweating and getting hot and cold. And um, I get tunnel vision, dizziness. And then I, um, it would, my, my, body would get really rigid and my jaw would get really rigid. Um, and I would often after an episode, uh, have to go to the chiropractor cause I throw out my neck. Um, that's how, wow. yeah, they can get pretty bad. And so, uh, after that, you know, what, those were happening a lot. And so you could imagine if you're driving to work as a geneticist, that kind of gets it in the way you have to pull over to have a panic attack if they're unpredictable you're in a lab i had to deal with human specimens and can't get those back if you drop you oh you really can't i'm so glad you said that because most people don't realize the impact it's big (laughs) it's so big so if you ruin a sample you can't get it back it's like a human's sample that's unique um and it's not like not even that you can go to a, the same person. It, it was an odd thing. Now, I loved the science, but my body was having panic attacks. And I ended up not, they, they called it restructuring the department is what they did. And basically, it was a way of getting rid of me as an employee because I, I had lost, you know, thinking back, I was really, really upset about this, but I could see how unproductive I was by the time the panic attacks had creeped up. I was also a professor of uh, microbiology at a community college at the time, and um, I couldn't show up to teach right, you know, and my partner at the time um I felt like he was walking on eggshells because he couldn't figure out when my next trigger was going to happen. I couldn't be um, intimate with him because the anxiety was so much. Or one time I end up in the ER with Ativan in my arm because I just 
had a panic attack and knocked me out. <laughs> and um, they put me on Xanax and then my personality took a hit because it kind of makes you a little numb. Back to my one skill, which, which was research. When I was on the Xanax, I decided to say, hey, I have to figure this out. The way I got on Xanax is I walked into a ther- uh it, it was a psychiatrist's office. And she's, I said to her, I think I'm going crazy. Tell me what flavor of crazy I am right now. Give me a diagnosis. Give me the meds. I'm fine. Let's just figure it out. Whatever, because I can't take this going on in my head right now. Yeah. And so she said, okay, 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 sit down. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. And we're going to figure out, I'll give you information after that. And she asked me a bunch of questions and I couldn't even tell where she was going. And I said, all right, so what is it? Am I bipolar? Am I, uh, am I whatever? And she said, well, I asked you all the questions for DID, bipolar, borderline personality, and you're fine. None of that. I could tell you're anxious and here's some Xanax, some more and I was I had left kind of upset or you would have rather had a diagnosis of something horrible just so you could put a name to it yes exactly and what ended up happening was I took a step back and I I realized what she didn't say what she didn't say was that there was no solution that it was that she didn't have the solution and so uh she I had talked to her about some spiritual stuff I had kind of happened upon and that there might be a spiritual perspective to this. I had just learned what empaths were and what HSPs were. And she said, there might be something to that. Go seek help in that realm, but here's some Xanax. Uh, (laughs) So the, the cool thing was that she was the first person that my friends thought I was crazy. I was the best man at my best friend's wedding and he fired me from that. Oh my God. He was just like, not ha- his fiance was so upset with me. Um, and they were like, well, he's meditating more. I think he's losing his marbles. Um, I lost friends, um, lost a career, lost everything. And so I put all my effort when I was on the Xanax to do research. Cause that's the one thing I was just always good at. And I started to look at Eastern and Western modalities, no stone left unturned. I ended up taking Reiki certification classes. I wanted to like just understand everything people said could possibly help with anxiety. And that that included more science, of course, like really understanding the mechanism of action of the medication I was on, like everything. I just wanted to know everything about it. And eventually I realized that it wasn't that people couldn't help people overcome panic attacks or get them into remission. It was that every person was just kind of talking about one piece of the puzzle. And what I'd realized is that for any anxiety to decrease it, especially persistent anxiety, you had to attack or find remedies for three different locations. The first is a physical component. The second is the mental and the third is actually environmental. And if you could imagine a Venn diagram of those three components overlapping, um, you could start to see that the anxiety itself, its baseline, your average is affected by all those three. And so if you have certain comorbidities or preexisting stuff, or if you have certain even belief systems, or if you have a certain, um, 
kind of uh, uh, program thoughts or traumas, or if you're in situations that are abusive or not conducive to your body, those all make your anxiety baseline be either really high or really low. And the higher it is, the closer your nervous system is to what I call a panic threshold. And then any little inciting anxious moment will cause your body to go into this huge episode. And I didn't know that. And then the key then was to decrease that baseline to neutral so that you're away from that trigger, from that 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 button I call in my book, the panic button. And um and once you realize, once I realized that, I just started to create and put myself on a schedule of a, of a, I'm going to say attacking each of these sections to finally overcome them. Um, so I always joke and say there's no real secret to what I do. It's just I put the pieces together in a way that helps specifically address anxiety symptoms. And you're looking at all the pieces. So when you sit down with someone, nobody's pieces are the same. Everybody's puzzle is put together differently. Sure. The other thing that makes it really difficult is if you add a layer of someone who identifies as an empath or an HSP. Tell us about those for our listeners who may not understand those two things. Sure. Um, Empaths are people who identify as, oftentimes here's what you will hear. I'm really sensitive to someone's emotions right <laughs> you, and me. You, you and i both have this in spades yep. yeah so um but when i looked in further it's not just limited to emotions it could be people um feeling people's emotions in a room it could be people reacting to um uh, different uh individual symptoms so if you witness the easiest way to say this is if you watch a surgery online and you kind of cringe It's like that, but for every physical symptom. So these people are often labeled as hypochondriacs. um, And then the people who are really emotional are are often told it's all in your head or you're overreacting, or they're told I'm walking on eggshells around you. And then there's people who are more in the, I would say in the spiritual realm who identifies intuitives. And so these are people who are affected by being outside versus inside being around nature or being around pets or being able to um, even determine um, sexual attraction by other without them expressing it so it's like that person who just happens to know someone's bidding for sexual connection (laughs) without it having been said out loud and these kinds of things were interesting to me because that's just an additional layer of stuff taxing your nervous system that is really hard to explain to maybe a therapist or someone or a friend yeah, and it's not something you can turn off or turn on it's part of who you are right so that's the empath piece what was the other piece you mentioned hsp stands for a highly sensitive person highly sensitive people and that's the that's the scientific name for what i believe is the same person as an empath the science, the scientific literature, really what they do is they start to understand what the brain is doing and how it could observe something, but cause a physiological response in the individual witnessing it. So if you witness um, someone eating, you might salivate just by watching it, right? And that phenomenon happens through these certain cells called mirror neurons in the brain. And so um, there's research on... Um, I, I believe it's a primate family. I forget which 
actual species, but they do researches where they watch this primate observe another one eating a banana and that primate starts to salivate. Why is that? Like, the, it's not actually eating it. Why are you having a physiological response? And that started to um, really give a name and a mechanism to what I had found previously in the empath world, the spiritual world. And I find that they're the exact same person. <laughs> yeah. And you have a very unique solution that you offer folks. I mean, the way you go about it, like you said, looking at all three of those overlapping rings and how they, um, how people interact with their environment and their own triggers. It's impressive <laughs> that you have created your own modality on, you know, to deal with this. And it really, you're helping a lot of people. What is, what's the, if for folks who are listening, what is the one thing that people come to you for? Like, what's the word they put to it? they they always recognize panic attacks but i often talk about the symptoms and how wild they feel so they usually come to me because of how this is the phrase i hear they're like i'm not going crazy this is really happening and i'm exhausting the people around me um and so they'll come to me trying to figure out what's wrong with them right um and so I, and I had the same thought. In fact, my book, Stop Pressing Your Own Panic Button, was going to be called, What's Wrong With Me? Why Do I Panic? That was the original, well, one of the candidate names. Yeah. Um, and I remember contemplating this myself. And the one quote I found was, I did like what most people do. You look to your like mentors, even in history. And for me, it was Nikola Tesla. And he said, if you wish to understand the secrets of the universe, think of everything in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Now, the first time I heard this, I was like, this is a little off. <laughs> I can't wrap my head around this, okay? But then I, I really thought about it. And it was a aha moment for me because it really laid the framework to understand how I could consider other things that are not super obvious to me. Because this is a guy who has described remote technology and the science behind it. He's the one talking about iPhones, iPhoning before it was happening. He right. clearly was thinking outside of, out of the box in a way that was effective. Um, and so I said, let me try this on for size. So I really committed to this thought and I was saying, well, if everything is energy, frequency, and vibration, then it means that we really can interact with so many things. Now, there's debates on whether it's really quantum or whether it's consciousness, blah, blah, blah. The point was it allowed me to not say no and actually truly try things on. Um, and that's really how I started to come up with a system that actually decreased that baseline. And so people come to me because it's easy to say, oh, this is the one thing we're specifically getting a result for, decreasing my anxiety so panics go away. But they end up finding out the root cause and the root cause ends up being how uniquely sensitive to their world they are when they didn't even know it. You certainly have gone from scientist, scientist, scientist to let's look at the world in a bigger way. Yes. Yes, yes. And that's what I, I guess it's my fear if I'm going to be vulnerable. My my fear is that I, you know, somehow people won't believe it because it's a very experiential thing. It's the same fear I had when I embarked on this journey. I was like, how about if I do find out I am crazy, right? 
but I was so willing to figure it out and I'm still so willing to figure it out um, even at the expense of finding out that there's something wrong right um, and what I find is that I could that's not true at all right but I'm willing to say hey what about my actual experience am I bringing to the table and what is it that's part of my identity or my physiology that makes it inevitable for me to be doing and reacting to my environment and anxiety and other people this way. Um, and it takes the blame off a little bit and you could really just explore and find out truly why you react to people in a unique way. And I feel like I say these words almost cryptically, but someone who's an empath is going to be like, yep, no, no, I totally get it. <laughs> Hey, um, I'm curious, when did you feel like, because you said coming out was a, obviously a trigger for panic attacks and then mm -hmm. different points in your life. And we talked about one point, I mean, you lost two boyfriends and a job and lots of other things that went on through those panic attacks. When did you feel like you were over it? Like, I'm good. I'm past this. Uh, there, it was the first time I really remember it was actually months after I hadn't had a panic attack. Panics were happening so frequently, one to three times a week on a mild week. So if you do the math, that's people having wow. 52 to over 300 panic attacks in a year. And shortly after, because they were so persistent, that that month after I was like, oh my God, I haven't had a panic attack in a month. Like that's a long time considering you're having them multiple times a week. Um, and then the moment I realized I was good was when I was starting to take more responsibilities at work. And then, in fact, I became the vice president of a publishing company eventually. Like in my career, the fact that I was not afraid to take on more and more and more. I was doing things publicly. I had written a book with just the ideas at the time. I, I looked back and I said, oh, they're just not coming up because the construct for my relationship with the anxiety and panic had completely changed. Mm -hmm. And so there was no way it's kind of, uh, it's kind of like this. If you run up and down the street and then you pause and then you go to your friend and you say, Hey, something's wrong with my heart. It's racing. And your friend says, well, then just stop running and let your heart settle. <laughs> right. You don't condemn your heart racing because you were moving fast you would just address the root cause which is you running if you stop running the actual symptom or side effect goes away what i'd realized is that the panic attacks were never the issue they were just the symptom of whatever the trigger was and so once i had inventoried my triggers and i the process that i talk and teach in the book and I even do this on social media. If you follow enough, you'll hear me talk about this. We'll share all your links. Yeah. Yeah. If you find if you find and take inventory of those triggers and address them directly, you don't even have the fear of a panic attack because it was never the problem in the first place. And a lot, you know, and people have different severities. So please don't think that I'm saying you're wrong for having persistent panic attacks. That, that's not what I'm saying is that the truth of the matter is it is complex and everyone does have unique triggers and they're not always obvious, um, especially things that have to do with traumas or belief systems that you've adopted that you don't even realize are not a fit for you. 
um, just like me and coming out, I had to redefine what was right and wrong in relationships, sexually, environmentally, <laughs> style-wise. Um, and you end up having to take inventory of where you are and what really does work for you moving forward. And so this is definitely years ago that I made the realization panic attacks don't have that power over me. And I don't mean that in a very like woo-woo kind of way. It's just when you realize that you've addressed these tr these triggers, you end up not being afraid of having one because you always know how to do it again. You always know how to go back and solve that root cause. You have a system in place to not just survive, but thrive through them. And, and mm -hmm. it's, it's empowering on the other side to go, oh, that used to, that would have been a thing and it's not now. Yeah. Well, I always wrap up with final three questions. Mm -hmm. And I think you've probably touched on some of them here, but we'll feel free to backtrack if you want to. But the first one is, what would you say to your younger self? And let me maybe go back to like, maybe you like when you're 20 or something, you tell me what age you want to go back to, but what would you say to your, if you could whisper in young Ramses's ear, what would mm -hmm. you go back and tell sweet little young Ramses? Ooh, I want to go even to before I was 10, when I remember having my first panic. And I want to tell that version of myself, don't assume you're wrong. The thing is, so many people would, you, you end up having a gaslighting experience where you're like, oh my God, they must be right and I'm wrong. I can't be perceiving things the way that I do, or I, I, I totally am overreacting. And I wanna say, don't assume you're wrong. Assume that you are having a real physical experience and really be able to at least label it for yourself. Don't assume you're wrong in your perception of things and um trust that i'm not saying don't do the things that are helping or can advance you but always be having your own side in things say yes i'm going to try the things you're saying and i'll consider them but this is still feeling pretty real don't assume you're necessarily wrong with your experience that's really good yeah i um a little bit it reminds me of like Rainbow Kitty. Remember the bed? Did you see the Lego Batman? Like, let's push all those feelings way down. Push them down. <laughs> yeah, that's great advice. Um, and I can, and I'm going to say the word and you tell me if it's a horrible thing to say, but I can picture, because you said you were chubby or, you know, yeah. you were heavy. Um, yeah. And I can picture a, a sweet little chubby version of you as a kid. And, and yes, you needed to hear that. Oh, that yeah. he. I just want to hug him now. I'm like, dude, you were doing the best you could. Like, <laughs> little Miami Puerto Rican boy. I could totally yeah. see your sweet little face. Yeah, he's he's cute. <laughs> I still can't picture you with hair, though. You mentioned hair in one of the things like in college. Like, so at some point I need to see a picture of you with hair. I, I have photos. I had long curly hair. Oh my God, it was to my shoulders, if you could imagine it. <laughs> For those of you listening, I'm bald right yeah, now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look at the picture that accompanies this. Yeah, it's, it's still, I can't even think right. of it. You gotta send me a photo. Mm -hmm. All right, the next question. One thing you know now that you wish you had known then? Uh, related to the first, but um, it's different. I would say stay curious. Um, the The, the thing that I hadn't realized at the time that really bailed me out every single time, like without a doubt, was my innate curiosity. And I questioned it a lot. 
Um, Because the way it's perceived as is you're challenging. If you go to a doctor and you're like, I don't know, is there more to this? It's perceived as challenging. If you have, you know, as a kid, I was taught don't talk to your parents that way. Um, If you question them, even though you're curious, you're perceived as being challenging. And so staying curious, though, for me, was the thing that like being okay with being that curious was the thing that actually helped. And and I did hate that about myself for a very long time because I just thought it was wrong that I was questioning so many things. But now I would say, don't feel like you're wrong. Related to the first one is don't assume you're wrong and also stay curious. Stay curious. Excellent advice. Okay, third question. Um, mm. One thing that our listeners can do today, we have many listeners who tune in because they're going through something tough, but one thing that our listeners can do today to help them get through whatever their own this is that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say challenge your own status quo. That is very interesting, uh, but it's just because I'm a naturally curious person. And so my the thing you could do today is always ask yourself, is there another solution? Challenge your brain and say something like, is there another way? So if you trust yourself and say something feels off, I don't feel like I have the complete picture. If you stay curious, then get to a space where you're like, what is another answer? What what would it look like? And the reason I say this is because I I was just on a podcast for another uh, 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 condition. It was a fibromyalgia podcast. And um, people in in the light of a diagnosis or 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 a condition or a person perceived personality flaw, it's easy to give in to the experts who are driving the conversation. But you have to trust yourself that if you feel like you don't have the full answer, be willing to question it and say, "Hey, what other thing?" Because it doesn't seem like this is addressing my real concern. Um, and my, my, my advice would be, be willing to challenge that and ask more questions. Very simple. I'm not saying don't do the things that are helping and definitely listen to your medical team and advice, but be willing to ask a person who's in authority, hey, I don't think this is a full thing. I'm still experiencing X, Y, Z. Be willing to ask. That's what I would say. Yeah, that's excellent. That's excellent advice. Some another way to think of that outside of maybe a medical panic attack for folks who are going through, you know, something that's just happened in your life. I always say um, you get to, you know, write what's next and you it's totally your story. So I, I do this sometimes when I'm in front of a big audience, like you know, you could decide right now, all you professionals sitting in this audience to like sell everything you own and buy an RV and drive around the country and check out like the world's largest roadside whatevers. Like that could be like your whole life from here on out. Like, nobody gets to choose that but you. Like I don't think anyone in the audience would actually do that. But the reality is think of it differently. Whatever mm-hmm. it is, if like this is like losing this job or losing this relationship or something horrible that's happened to you. Like it's not everything you get to decide whatever's next could be totally different than who you are. One of the things that's so key is when you're into some, when something big happens, like panic attacks or a Mm -hmm. diagnosis or something, people are not going to look at you like you're crazy because you do something totally different. 
it's a, it's licensed to totally change the story. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I, I love that you said that because it was at that moment that I was like, if there's a time to try some new stuff, it's now because actually people sort of expect me to try stuff. And that's my overall message is that um, look, be willing to look at it differently because uh, what's that phrase? I'm going to misquote it. It's something like the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And so um, for me, it was like, well, what could I just try different? Let me just pull one thing out. That's totally science in me, the scientist in me. I just like, let's just pull this one out and see what happens. <laughs> and, and you know, I, I call it the do something principle. Um, if you are in the same kind of stuckness um even if you feel in a dark spot definitely try something go for a walk like go for a hike I, you've never hiked before go for your first hike ever or just try something because sometimes removing yourself from the environment um will cause you to have very different thoughts and cause you to have very different emotions and it could trigger something else yeah during my when i got divorced a gazillion years ago i took up surfing yeah like, in my 30s, I'm like, yep, I'm going to go hire a coach and take up <laughs> surfing because that's what I want to do. What what I tried is going to sound so crazy. I took on another job. Literally, I had two jobs, so there was no reason to do this. I took on a job at a print center just to do some. It was totally different than sciencing. And it was just like I made posters. And in that monotony, I thought a lot of the things I ended up writing about. It was pretty wild. Oh, so good. All right. Well, we could chat all day long. Thanks so much for sharing this time with us, Ramses. This has been great. Appreciate you. Oh my God. Thank you for having me. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. you're doing an amazing job giving hope. It's certainly given me hope on some of the tough times leading. So I, I always listen. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm one of your fans. I remember the, the first episode that dropped. <laughs> well, I'm sure that there are things that you said today that is resonating that is and will resonate with our listeners. How can they follow you, support you, get in touch? You know, I'll make it super easy. Um, I like to just give my book away and I'd love to do it for your folks who are listening. Um, if people just go to panicfreedombook.com, they'll get my book that I talk about, all the things that I described around anxiety and panic attacks, um, any gems will be in there. And that'll also help you follow me in other places because it'll kick back all the info. Excellent. I'll make sure I put that link in the description of this podcast. So thanks. And thanks so much, Ramses, for being here. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And thanks to everyone who's listening. It is when we talk about the tough stuff that we all get stronger. Whatever you are going through, you've got this. The you 10 years from now is counting on you to keep going. This has been another episode of This Seriously Sucks. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Nina Sossaman Pogue and her guests. They are not a substitute for professional advice. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, call 1-800-273-TALK or send a text to www.crisistextline.org. For more resources or to share your story or to get a free copy of my book, go to mythis.club. There's a whole club of folks out there who want to help you get through this.